Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We've been in a series called Light of the World. And we've been talking about different aspects of following Jesus, the light of the world. And we, we talked about last week a city on a hill uh, which can't be hidden. And actually, it was mixed up in the order. I was meant to do City of the Hill this week, but I think I was just so excited about preaching on uh, Vineyard Cleveland being a city on a hill, which you guys do a phenomenal job at being, that I just was, I forgot the order. So today was meant to be last week, but it's today. So here we are. And today, we're going to be talking about fake light. Fake light, uh, which is really not light at all, but darkness. We're going to be on the top topic of spiritual warfare. And so hang, hang on to your hats, I think is all I've got to say there. But the key kind of verse is when Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he says, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And what he's talking about here in context is false teachers and those who would bring uh, something other than the true unadulterated gospel of Jesus. Um, but really what Paul is getting at, is, what he's driving at is at the heart of it, at the center of it all, is spiritual warfare. And so today, uh, there's a key passage that we're going to be talking about in Mark 3, verses 20 through 27. And really, the key verse there is uh, verse 27, uh, where Jesus says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So today is not like Christianity light. Uh, you know, there's like Bud Light, Miller Light, Christianity Light. Today is not that. It's like a deep dive into spiritual warfare. So it might get a little bit hairy, but that's okay. We'll do most of the heavy lifting on the front end. Um, so it's in your face today, as it were, talking about some core, core things of discipleship and spiritual formation. And so let's read Mark 3. Chapter 3, verses 20 through 27, together. And then we'll unpack it a little bit. Mark 3, uh, verse 20, Mark writes this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. His family... You think you've got family issues. (laughs) And the teachers of the law, uh, they showed up too, who came down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Okay. So a lot going on there. Lord Jesus, come fill this time with your presence as we look at spiritual warfare, God, and what you have for us. Amen. How many of you have heard about savant syndrome? 
You know, savant syndrome is something uh, folks will experience because of maybe a major trauma physically to their bodies at an early age. Others um, are, are born this way, and it's a, a physical, physiological, neurological condition. And some folks who uh, have savant syndrome are brilliant people, genius people. Um, you know, some savants are just amazing at golf. Others have photographic memories. It's a very deep and narrow intelligence, in fact. Some are brilliant chess players. Others are uh, brilliant in the field of mathematics or otherwise. Just brilliant, brilliant people in some cases. Howard Gardner was an author, and he wrote this magnificent book on IQ. Everybody's up on IQ. IQ measures two levels of intelligence. It measures our verbal capacity, our linguistic capacity, and it also measures our arithmetic, our our mathematical capacity for intelligence. Well, Gardner, who was a Harvard professor, came along, and he wrote this wonderful book, and he said that our measurement for intelligence is too narrow. It's too narrow. And he argued or advocated for a more broad measure of intelligence. He said, no, no, no. It's not just limited to two intelligences. There's actually seven, if not more, which people express in their lives. You know, there's, there's bodily intelligence. You think of um, professional athletes and how they're intelligent in their body. They just know their body so well and what their body can do. There's an athletic intelligence there. Others are interpersonally intelligent. They can walk into any room, any meeting, and just fill out the room. They can just know what's going on in that room. Others may be musically intelligent. There's something about musicians. This is a high, a very high form of intelligence. (laughs) if I may say so myself. There's just something about the, their sense of timing and rhythm and key and pitch. Have you seen this YouTube video of Charlie Puth? He's a famous pop musician, and he's on the Jimmy Kimmel show, on the late night show, and, and Jimmy Kimmel wanted to test this theory of Charlie Puth having perfect pitch, and so he clinks his coffee mug, and Charlie Pitch is able to say, actually, it's not just one note, it's two, it's nah, nah, like that, and he's able to match it note for note. That's intelligence there. So there's these seven different layers of intelligence, and what Gardner is saying is he's saying it, that it's too broad, it's too, it's too narrow to measure intelligence by just two criteria. And he said healthy people are growing in all seven areas of intelligence. Likewise, with our topic this morning, it's helpful to keep in mind that as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, we'll, we, we focus on different aspects of that. You know, we want to be growing in what it means to hear from God. We want to be growing in what it means to pray, to pray for others, to pray to Jesus, to sit with Jesus. We want to grow in, in what it means to behold Jesus' presence and worship, to grow in our expression of worship. We want, to, we want to learn to grow in all of these different areas and have a broad sense, which I believe is most healthy, in all of these areas. You know, spiritual formation is the same way as what Gardner said. We want to be growing and maturing in all areas. And so when we come to talk about spiritual warfare, we want to be aware that it's happening. 
Not paranoid, aware that it's happening, but not paranoid, right? I'm aware this morning that probably 90% of people in the room, when we're talking to a room like this or in a conversation like this, that 90% of people in the room this morning are probably just like, you know, this topic or this theme or this aspect of spiritual formation, I really don't think about it on a day-to-day basis. Then there are 10% in the room maybe who might think about it too much. You know, Paul said we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. We don't want to be unaware that there is a real war that's going on right now. There are individual and very personal beings that we cannot see that are out exerting force and power against your life. There's warfare surrounding your life and my life, and we don't want to be unaware of that. And what this morning is, is simply about making room making room for Jesus to do what he does best and why he came, which was to drive back the evil one, which was to push out evil, to drive out the demonic. And so that's what this morning is about. So a little bit of context here on our verse, on our passage. In Mark, what's happening is that Mark is writing this around 65 AD, around the time of the reign of Nero who was the emperor of Rome. And for any of you who've done history uh, study or research on Rome, you know that Nero was atrocious. Nero was an evil man. You know, he would, there was a fire really early on in the city of Rome, and it was a widespread fire, and, and Nero took that opportunity to blame Christians for the outbreak of this fire, which destroyed a lot of the city. Scholars look back and say that it was probably Nero who started the fire himself. Christians during the time of Nero were persecuted, they were oppressed, you know. It wasn't uncommon for Christians during this time to, for Nero to behead them and then stick their heads on stakes in public view and burn them as torches. Nero was awful, he was a bit, he was a lot insane. Nero was insane. And so Mark is writing his gospel at this time, and he's saying, here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the deeper thing that Mark is trying to get across in telling stories like this and filling his gospel with stories of Jesus that are like this is is he's saying, listen, Christians in Rome and Christians in Cleveland, Ohio, it's not Nero who's your enemy. There's a deeper force at work here against the gospel of Jesus Christ, against Jesus, and against anyone who claims Jesus as Lord. There's an enormous war going on behind the scenes, and there are spiritual forces at work, and some of those forces are satanic. And Jesus came to drive out the evil one, to drive out the the demonic And that's what our passage is all about. And so we see there in verse 21 that his family heard about this. They went to take charge of him. For they said he's out of his mind. Take charge of him is very mild. And in fact, a lot of New Testament scholars wanted to exclude this verse altogether because it makes Jesus look crazy. The Greek word for charge is arrest him. His family wanted to arrest him. They thought he was nuts. 
Jesus is nuts. And then in verse 22, the Pharisees show up on the scene and they do as Pharisees do, the teachers of the law, they try to corner him. And then Jesus gives this exposition. He says, listen, it's just not logical what you're saying. How can Satan drive out Satan? Uh, Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And then we get to verse 27. And he tells this beautiful little parable, which is where we're going to park this morning. And he says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Really cool parable. And what he's saying is that, Jesus is saying, is that simply by his presence, there's an authority there to drive back evil, to drive back the evil forces that are waging war against us behind the scenes. So I looked on Google for a strong guy in front of a house, and here's what I came up with. I mean, that's the best thing I could do. Looks like some dude in... Some dude in Arizona. Okay, Jane, let's get back to the passage. Okay. (laughs) Strong man in front of the house. Okay. So Mark is saying that to understand Jesus and what Jesus has come to do and to be for us is that he has tied the strong man up. And now that the strong man is tied up, Jesus is free to enter the house and set folks free. To rob, interesting language there, to rob, to plunder the house and to bring people out of captivity to lead them into a life of freedom. Jesus drives out evil. And there are nations and institutions that are being influenced by the demonic. It's a powerful thing. It's a real force. And we need to be aware of that when we delve into a topic like spiritual warfare. Scripture gives all kinds of names to Satan. He's called the accuser, the twister. Jesus calls him a a, a murderer. He's an accuser of the brethren. He's the father, the prince of lies. He's a tempter. He's called a dragon, a snake. He's the antichrist. He's evil. And it's the sense, when we come to look at spiritual warfare, it's the sense of something being unleashed. Something that's sweeping. And it's true, human beings can do all kinds of atrocious evil to one another. But what Jesus is saying here and the warfare that we live, on, live in is just something on another level. When you sense that there's something operating beyond what you can see, that there's something pushing, actively pushing against you, beyond the logical, beyond just having a bad day, there's something powerful and intense behind it. I mean, just pause for a moment. Just, just think for a moment on history. You think about the atrocities of Nazi Germany with Hitler and the Holocaust and what went on there and the the better part of six million plus human beings being systematically burned alive, slaughtered and gassed all over Europe is beyond human evil. It's a heinous, atrocious thing 
that got unleashed there. You think about, you think about Stalin or, or the gulags. You think about Pol Pot or Mao and, and, and any, kind of, any kind of genocide that sort of just sweeps across. I was doing study on Rwanda this past week and the, and, and the genocide that was unleashed there. Over 800,000 people killed in less than 100 days. Neighbors upon neighbors. Or you think of Bosnia or, or, or more recently the Darfur region in the Sudan, over 300,000 people murdered in the span of 18 months. There's something that gets unleashed there that's beyond logical. I'm just going to study this in a history book that's, that's global in its scale. You think about our workplaces. <laughs> you say, I have always known that about my boss. <laughs> you know, you know, it's not just a bad boss. There's a, there's a force there that's influencing and moving uh, larger corporations or small businesses forward that just hurt people, that just damage people's lives. You know, and that force is not limited to workplaces. It's political institutions. It's families. If something gets unleashed in a family and it's generational, there's curses over a family. It's the way that money influences and Satan gets hold of that. You've seen it. You know, some of the richest men in the, in the world are some of the most poor. Yeah? In the educational systems. More personally, it's like unforgiveness or bitterness take root in the human heart. And you watch a human being go down that downward spiral and, and murder doesn't seem out of the question far down that spiral. I've sat in front of people and heard the stories. Or you think about sexuality or, or race and the, and the global scale of that as people see uh, human beings created in the image of God as things and the objectification of people and the horrors of racism. What got unleashed in the African slave trade, the Asian slave trade, over centuries in, in sexuality with the, the pornography industry now, a $12 billion a year industry fueling the fires of human trafficking. There's something beyond human evil there that's sweeping, that's pushing, that's sweeping over people. You know, the core of it the mission of the devil is to destroy human beings. And he will not stop at any cost. It's not just like we think about the enemy sometimes. He wants to like come in and maybe mess with our finances and like give us a little hit on the shoulder, a little punch on the shoulder. Oh, gotcha. And then run. No, he's out to kill you and I. He's out to murder us. The mission of the devil is to destroy human beings. But the mission of Jesus is to save human beings and set them free. The kingdom of God was the central message of Jesus. And Jesus has come to set people free, to save human beings. You know, the evil one wants to cut you off, to isolate you, to pull his name, the deceiver, it means to pull away from. So anything that he can do to get you away from relationship with Jesus, or if you don't have one yet, to keep you from relationship with Jesus. He will do. 
And this text here in Mark, this text, and I would argue the whole of the New Testament is an invasion of Jesus to say no more. You've gone this far, no more. It's an invasion of Jesus. He's invading to drive out the evil one. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. And this is where people get confused. They're saying, well, if the kingdom is here, if Jesus came, then why do we see evil still in the world today? Well, we live in an in-between time. Jesus, were, people are confused. They wanted Jesus to show up and just do away with all evil. Well, if that happened, we'd all be gone. But we're not there. We live in an in-between time. But the time will end. Jesus will make things right. He will come back. And, and now we wait. The kingdom has come, and it's also not yet. We're in between. There's a warfare going on, but we know who wins. Christ will return. And so it's helpful, for me anyway, to recognize that Satan doesn't possess nearly the same power as Jesus does. As we turn the page here, it's not like some like heavyweight fighters, you know, like these Ali films, sparring in the ring and, you know, they're trading jabs, or it's not like WWE Monday Night Raw, like where like, you know, it it looks like one guy's going to win and then the dude takes a chair and, you know, he comes back and then he comes back. No, no, Jesus has decisively dealt with evil. The scriptures tell us that God is on the throne. He is in control. He's, he's the, the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. Scripture says, and I love this phrase, He's the Lord God Almighty. He's the Lord God Almighty. And He may be allowing evil for a season, but it will end. And we wait. It will end. This is the reason why Jesus came. He invaded to initiate that end when all evil would be eliminated. As we read this morning in Colossians 2.15, Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And what's interesting about our passage here is that the cross and his resurrection hasn't even happened yet. And Jesus shows up and just by his presence, evil flees. You know, Jesus hasn't even said it is finished yet. But merely by showing up on the scene, he's driving back the demonic. He's kicking Satan out. So that, so that you and I would be able to receive the words of Jesus. In 1 John 4.4, that we would receive the words of Jesus as a reality, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Jesus has dealt a decisive blow to evil. And Mark is saying, through all of this gospel, through this passage, the same, don't be afraid. Little fuck, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus is conquered. Uh, Evil is not fully destroyed, but it's coming. It's coming. And God will, will be all in all. And like that verse in Habakkuk, what does it say? That the love of God one day will saturate, will drench the earth. To his government, there will be no end. 
He's tired of failed politicians. The kingdom's coming. And to his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. That's the goal of history, to set the world right. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Nothing will stop it. There's nothing that can stand in the way of Jesus ushering in his rule and reign, his kingdom. And Paul says in Philippians, what we have to look forward to is this, is that one day in Philippians 2, 10, and 11, one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the strong man has been tied up and Jesus is Lord and that Jesus reigns one day and we wait. So that's the, that's the notion on this passage is that the evil one has been tied up and Jesus reigns. And so what do we do about it? So there are two invitations that I'd like to draw our attention to this morning. And the first invitation is one of discernment. And then I'll talk about filling our house with Jesus. So first, discernment. We need discernment when it comes to talking about spiritual warfare. When we're experiencing these dynamics in our lives, we need discernment. And the question that would be good for us to ask is, is this a direct frontal assault? Is this spiritual attack? Or is this a spiritual formation moment for me? Which is it? Because I got to know. I need to discern which one it is in my life. And it's hard to tell sometimes. You know, when Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted... The scriptures say that he went into the, into the wilderness uh, filled with the Spirit. And then he left the wilderness by the power of the Spirit. There's something about this discernment process and spiritual attack that lasts for a season. And if you allow God to do his work in that season, you will walk out never the same. So Jesus entered the wilderness and then he left the This was a season. This was a season for Jesus. Likewise, a direct frontal assault. When Jesus is speaking with Peter, remember? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know, this was a direct frontal assault on Jesus' mission to suffer and to go to the cross. Get down off the cross. How easy would it be for Jesus to jump down on, off the cross? But he didn't do it. He stayed up on the cross. As a direct frontal assault, like Gethsemane, when he's struggling with the Father's will. And he finally comes to a point through blood, sweat, and tears. Not my will, but yours be done. That's a direct assault from the evil one to get Jesus off track, to distract him from what his true mission was. And if you claim Jesus, if you claim Jesus, you will go through seasons of spiritual assault, of attack. I know in my journey, I've gone through three or four seasons like that. Theologians might call it the, the dark night of the soul. When that phrase, you know, all hell is breaking loose in my life. All hell is breaking loose. I'm, I'm hanging by, uh, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at my last thread. How, how many of you have gone through seasons like that? You, say, you might say to me, I've never experienced anything like that. You liar. You liar. 
We all go through that. If you follow Jesus, you will experience what Jesus experienced. And there's a warfare surrounding your life. And you will go through seasons of spiritual assault. And you need discernment to figure those seasons out. Like Jesus, you'll go through it. But the call is to stand firm. And when you stand firm, you will come out changed. You look at the book of Job. And for 20, 30 odd chapters, Job is getting just everything and the kitchen sink thrown at him. He loses friends. He loses everything. He's just being, it's a full frontal assault on Job's life. Side note, if you're going through it right now, read Job. Read Job. Be really good for you. But Job's getting everything thrown at him. But it was for a season. Because watch, at the end, Job says, at the very end of the book, Job says, I, I knew of you, God, but now I have seen you. Now I have heard you. When you go through seasons of spiritual attack, you or I, we go through seasons of spiritual assault. We come out changed on the other side of it. God changes us. And the call is to stand firm. In fact, let's read that. Let's read that. In Ephesians 6, Paul says this about spiritual warfare. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. So, for you, and you need to hear this. For you, God won't allow you be, to be tempted beyond anything you can't take. God is in control. He's your father. He knows. He's, he's not going to allow the enemy to tempt you beyond what you can take. He will see you through it. You will come through on the other side. And the call for you, if you're going through it right now, if there's something beyond, you know, I'm just having a bad, I'm having a bad, bad day. Group. If, if there's something beyond, you know, just having a bad day, there's spiritual forces pushing against your life. The call for you, for you, stand firm. It's not the time to make any big decisions. Stand firm. Don't move. Don't move. God, God will see you through that season of spiritual attack, of spiritual assault. If you're there right now, Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Okay, what if it's a spiritual formation moment? Because I got to know the difference. What, is it attack or is it spiritual formation? Is this a moment for me? So here's the deal. When I first started coming around the vineyard in Columbus, I thought those people were nuts. You know, they talk about the devil, and they talk about satanic influence and spiritual warfare. I'd be like, I'm out of here. You guys are nuts. Well, you walk a couple years with Jesus. You start following Jesus, and, and you reconsider. 
I think there's something real to this. I think, I think there actually is a target on my back because I'm claiming Jesus. You know, and, and soon after, I think, you know, as, as I grew in, in, in Christ and I started to follow him into ministry, you know, I, I, I've, been all, I've been all over the world and I've cast demons out in Africa and I've cast demons out in Augusta, Georgia and in Ireland, in Chicago, a lot, in, in Cleveland, here, here in Cleveland. And that's not a knock on Chicago. I love Chicago. Chicago. But you know, you, you know, I started to move into this space where like it was like everything, you know, and it was my my understanding was so narrow of like, well, that's a demon and that's not, or everything is demonic. You know, this whole kind of thing of there's a demon behind every rock sort of attitude. You know, admittedly, I was I was there. And so everything, you know, it's, everything became about that, about projecting onto the outside what wasn't really there. You know, it's like, uh, I'm sorry, I was late for the meeting. Like, there's traffic on 480. There's demons on 480. He was backed up across the bridge. Demons on 480. Demons in the, in the sound booth, not Tamash, in the board. There's demons in the board. Making our worship team screw up. <laughs> demons in the coffee. There's demons everywhere, you know. But could it be, you know, could it be as we grow in, in Christ that not everything is a demon behind every rock? That sometimes God is inviting us to grow up. Sometimes God is calling our attention to a spiritual formation moment. Not every obstacle, loss, or disappointment is the devil's fault. Sometimes we give him too much credit, don't we? And what happens there is that when we process things that way, it, um, when everything's on the outside, when everything is someone else's fault, the devil included, that it um, releases us from, any, uh, from doing anything. Yeah? And so a, a common example of this, and a huge disservice that the church has done uh, well over centuries, is, is the way that the church treats people who have chronic depression. That's an easy one. Or any sort of um, mental illness or even anxiety or PTSD. You know, the church has come historically and said to people who are depressed chronically, well, that's a devil, we got to cast it out of there. And then when the person doesn't get any better, they say, it's your fault. It's your fault that the devil still hangs on. What's, that view is so narrow and so short-sighted. And I know plenty of people on antidepressants who, that's a, that's a miracle for them. You know, it totally discounts like advances in medicine or whatever that are able to, um, to lift us out of that or to provide some relief. You know, the same as like, it, it would be the same as like diabetes, you know? Like there's medicine for that. And thank God, you know, not every case of chronic depression, rarely, very few cases of chronic depression are demonic. And so there's this balance. It's like, you know, we're, we're not about vilifying people at Vineyard Cleveland. Like it's, not, like, it's not your fault that you struggle with depression, but it is 
on your response to journey through it with Jesus. And so we want to create a space here where both can happen, where there can be deliverance that happens. People set free because that's what Jesus came to do. And also journey with people, is this a spiritual formation invitation? Like, is God calling you to grow up in this? And if the answer is, yeah, this is a spiritual formation issue, like, okay, we've ruled out, because I got to know which it is. If it's not spiritual attack, if it is a spiritual formation issue, then the answer is we need to rise. We need to receive that invitation. And God is asking us to grow up. So if it's a full-on frontal attack, stand firm. If it's a spiritual formation issue, grow up, right? Rise, receive that invitation. You know, we see it in James uh, chapter 1 where these two... um, These two elements are in play with one another. James says, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you experience trials and temptations. It's going to lead to you becoming like gold. It's going to lead to perseverance, and perseverance is going to lead to faith in you. Okay, And, And the word for trial is attached to the demonic in some senses. But it's also spiritual formation at the same time. They're intermingled there. And so if it's not a full demonic attack, we need to grow up. You know, God's on the throne. He wants us to mature. He wants us to grow up. And nothing comes into our lives without God's oversight. You think of spiritual formation issues. Think of Paul. Where Paul Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh. And he calls it a messenger of Satan, right? It's this interplay between the two. And he said he asked God, he pleaded with God three times, take that thing away, take that thing away. And God said, nope, nope, nope. But then Paul writes in that passage, he says the reason that he was given that was that he might not be conceited, right? And then he says, your grace is sufficient for me. Think about the life of Paul. Paul, this powerful dude in the spirit, you know, evangelizes thousands of people, influences thousands, millions of people for the kingdom of God. And and ego gets mixed up in there. Arrogance. God's saying, I don't want you to be arrogant. Paul, think about Paul. That would be trouble. If Paul was filled up with arrogance, think of the gifts and the power that he possessed. And God is saying, Paul, grow up. Grow up. This is a spiritual formation issue. So as we close this morning, we want to bring all of these areas into unity. Jesus' focus was always on discipleship, always. And so he, you know, considering his mission, Jesus was like, whatever I do, I need to get these 12 guys focused on the warfare that's surrounding their lives and to fill their house with Jesus. To fill their house with Jesus. And I wanted to look at one last scripture in Matthew. Matthew 12. I know it's different from the the Mark passage, but it's highly important. So he says, in Matthew... uh, 1243, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through 
arid, dry places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean. Jesus cleans it up and put back in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. So now you got eight. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. So what's the invitation here? Because it relates to spiritual formation. George Barna is a pollster with the church, has written a lot of books. This book is called Maximum Faith. And in this book, he surveyed the greater part of the hundred million people in America today who call themselves evangelical Christians. And what he found was that 98%, and this is shocking, and it was saddening to me, that 98% of those 100 million people would say, and in fact answered, that Christianity makes no difference. They have not been transformed. Less than 2% have said Christianity has, Jesus has transformed. What, 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 what Barna is expressing here in the, in the figures, where the American church is at right now, is less than 2% of Christians would say, my house is full with the presence of Jesus. My house is filled with his presence. You know, may, it may look clean, your house, when we're talking about your house, your body, your, who you are, this house, the church, uh, the church at large. It may look clean, maybe a big mega church with lights and, and, and smoke and sound and not cutting on big mega churches or anything, but it may, it may look good on the outside. Your life, you know, you may have gotten a job promotion. You, your kids may be doing well in school. It may look good on the outside, but the house is empty. And Jesus says, Jesus says it, not me, that when the house is swept clean and is left unoccupied, that spirit goes into dry places and then returns with seven of his friends and the condition of that person is worse off than before. Ouch. So the question is, what are we filling our house with? What are we filling our house with? Are we filling our house with the development of our relationship with Jesus. What does that mean? Are we learning to pray, to spend more time in prayer, to listen for the voice of God, learning what it means to worship? What does it mean to to really worship you, Lord? Learning to, to be in this thing called fellowship where we actually trust, begin to trust one another again. And we, we're going to a small group or we're leading a small group to prioritize the relationship with Jesus above and beyond any other relationship. Are we learning to behold the one thing, the one thing, everything at his feet? What are we filling our house with? Deliverance included, we want Vineyard Cleveland, and I, and I know you're with me on this, to be a place that drives out evil, where deliverance happens, where people get set free, and also that we're learning to grow in our spiritual formation, that we're filling our house with Jesus. I love this. John Wimber said this, founder of the Vineyard Movement. He said, quote, I'd rather fill the house up with Jesus And then there's no room for the evil one. He said, like rats feed on garbage, as people deal with the garbage of their lives, 
There's no room for the rats of the evil one to, to sneak in there and feed on the garden and hang on any longer. That the, the, the house is swept clean. That we're driving back evil. And so we're going to close in prayer if you guys wanted to stand with me.